We're in a series called Fear Not, or we have been, looking at, through the Christmas story, a lot of the different encounters that individual had with angels, right, as they uh, discovered or learned what God's plan was. And today we want to finish that series. Um, next week we'll start a new series called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. I'm kind of excited about that one. Should be fun. It's about the lies the devil tells us. But this week, um, uh, fear not is what we've been focused on. And eliminating or overcoming the fears that we have. Just like the individuals in the Christmas story had to overcome the fear they initially felt at encountering an angel or a messenger from God, we too need to overcome some of our fears. And the one I want to focus on today as we kind of conclude the Christmas story, look at the, um, the wise men who came and some of the events that happened um, after Jesus' birth, God continued to fulfill his plan What I want us to focus on today is to overcome the fear that we can have, the fear of earthly powers. When God sent his son to earth, when Jesus came, God took on human flesh. God did announce the coming of his son hundreds of years before. There are prophecies all throughout the Old Testament about what the Messiah, um, who he would be, what he would look like, where he would be born, uh, many details And so um, God did announce his arrival, but it's interesting that only those who were, uh, who had been told, in other words, they knew the information regarding the Messiah, and they were unbiased as to what it would look like when the Messiah came. Only those, and, and only a few of those really were able to see and identify that Jesus, the Messiah, had actually come to earth. And in our world today, it is very similar. Many people miss Jesus as having, having really fulfilled the promises of God, that he was God in the flesh, that he did provide and do the work of God to provide salvation for us. There are a lot of people that miss it. And so it's kind of the same requirements, that you have to be curious. You have to be open and unbiased as to what God's fulfillment, God's of his own promises would be and what it really would look like if God came to earth. Earthly powers, which we're subject to on this earth, there are always those in power. (laughs) The human race desires power, and there's always individuals that rise to power, and they create governments, right? And and, uh, always, it seems throughout the history of the world, the powers on this earth are in opposition, very real opposition, to the plan of God. And we can see it play out. And it's very clear, if you look at the history of the world, to see how the um, the, the powers or the humans that come into power have their own agenda and their own plan. And they want to control the territory. They want to control the wealth. They want to control the people. And so these, uh, these power struggles have gone on um, since almost nearly since uh, the, the world was created and certainly since we have any history of the human race. And so these power struggles are costly Um, They have a great deal of cost. A lot of times the power struggles look like war, right? In our country, we have a history of war. One of the most significant, costly wars that we ever uh, got entangled in is called the Civil War, where we fought amongst ourselves regarding the future of our country and who would control that future. And so the cost of the Civil War is kind of staggering. Um, There's um, different cost estimates made, but um, I think it's pretty well agreed that Um, The Union, as of 1979, estimated wartime expense altogether amounted to over $6 billion. 
In today's money, it would be $71 billion that just the North paid to fight the war. The Confederacy also had tremendous cost incurred, $3 billion fighting the Civil War. They also had to deal with inflation. We've got inflation today, right? It's not fun. But they had to deal with 9,000% inflation by the end of the war. The cost was tremendous, and that's just the financial cost. Obviously, the cost in life and the cost to the direction of our country and the pain of that war, we still feel in many ways. The power struggle for control of this earth has gone on. It continues to go on. In order for us to understand what is happening in our world, we have to be able to see the spiritual battle that goes on behind the scenes. In Psalm chapter 2, I want to look at that real quick. It's a fantastic psalm. It's a messianic prophecy that gives us a sense of this, this cosmic battle, this spiritual battle that goes on behind the scenes. Psalm 2 describes the battle that human leaders have against God. And it reminds us that, very importantly, earthly powers are not ultimately in control. Let's read Psalm 2 together. Check out what, uh, what this prophetic writer writes concerning God and his plans, specifically regarding the Messiah. He says this, Why are, are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time in futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break free from their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. The, kings proclaim, uh, the king proclaims the Lord's decree. The king said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break free or you will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then kings, now then you kings act wisely. Be warned you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all those who take refuge in him. You can see the themes, right, flowing through it. The plan of God and the, the attitude the perspective that human power, that, that humans take to the plan of God. A desire to war against it, to break free from God's design, his intention for the human race. Sadly, this has been the case nearly from the beginning. It has been the intention of the devil, who is the enemy of God, to thwart all of God's plans and to take the human race off course in a different direction. And human beings, because of our lust for power and our sin nature, go willingly along with the devil's plans. This prophecy in Psalm 2 reveals, kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes look about the galactic spiritual battle that goes on in our universe. Whose power will win out? Whose plan will ultimately win when it comes to the direction that this universe will go? When God's son 
took on human flesh. The devil, along with the earth's rulers, sought to destroy him rather than surrender to him. The fact is, ever since God created humans, there has been a battle as to who will run the universe, whose plan will succeed. God's plans will be fought against. And we can see that in the case of God's son coming to earth, on a mission, that the second thing is true. Earthly powers will try to stop God's plan. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at the uh, kind of the end of the Christmas story as we know it. An encounter that Jesus is going to have and Mary and Joseph with some wise men, as we call them, magi from the east. Let's read Matthew chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, that is Herod the Great. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. I kind of like that. King Herod's upset. Everybody's upset. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked the question, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting uh, with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go worship him too. After this interview with the wise men, they went away. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child and his mother, uh, saw his, the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In this passage, the religious leaders whom Herod goes to to find out about this, this threat to his power, um, he, he wants to know where this Messiah is supposed to be born. Where is this child to show up? And so Micah is the prophet that these religious leaders, Pharisees probably, quoted. Now they quote to Herod what the prophet Micah had written between 735 and 700 BC. Over 700 years before this moment in time, the prophet Micah had foretold the town in which, in the nation of, or in the, in the nation of Judah, where the Messiah would be born. Now, there, the prophet Micah primarily worked in Judah. That's where his ministry occurred. Judah was the southern kingdom. If you'll remember, the nation of Israel was divided in half after the reign of Solomon. So after Solomon died, it was King David's son, um, there was unrest and there was a power struggle within the nation of Israel. And it divided the kingdom into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the, the city of Jerusalem was in Judah or the southern kingdom. And that's where Micah was prophesying. Micah um, lived at the same time as Isaiah Hosea and Amos, those were other prophets. Isaiah was a, uh, is known as a major prophet, 
right? There was five of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the major prophets, all right? So you can remember that, they're the first five. And then the minor prophets, Hosea and Amos were minor prophets, and there's 12 of those, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay, so you guys repeat after me. <laughs> no, no, it's a test. There's a test coming. That's why you can't fall asleep. All right? There's a quiz coming at the end. Who are the major prophets and the minor prophets? You can get those down. Um, so anyway, all those prophets, the distinction came. This is just a little extra information to be interested in. The, uh, the major and minor distinction was uh, given around the time of Augustine. That was about 400 B.C. Uh, or excuse me, 400 A.D. And Augustine was a leader um, um, in Hippo, northern Africa. He was a leader of the church. And uh, that's when those distinctions were made. And they're just simply based on the length of those books. The first five are just a little bit longer um, than the remaining 12. And so anyway... Micah is the prophet, and so we see the work of God throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. See, the clues were there. The information was there. And yet Herod was unaware. The Pharisees of the day were aware of, uh, of what um, the signs would be, but they missed it. King Herod was simply concerned about his power position. He was called a king, but it was kind of a self-title. He wasn't really a legitimate king of Israel. He didn't come in the line of David or of any king. He didn't have a rightful um, uh, uh, claim to the throne. He really was more like he was a Roman-appointed leader, probably more uh, better called a Roman tetriarch or the governor of Galilee, really was his title. But he was a, he was a brutal leader, a, bu a brutal leader in the nation of Israel. But the, these kings, these wise men or magi, came uh, and, and wound up right um, in front of King Herod. And that's where they naturally went. He was in charge. He was a, a Jewish leader at the time. And they were seeking. Surely he would know that this Messiah had come. Surely he would be interested in the coming of the real king of the Jews. But of course, Herod was simply threatened by this possible um, future king. So his response was not good um, and, and not welcoming. These magi um, or wise men, interestingly enough, were probably astrologers as well. They, they looked at the skies. They looked at the heavens to watch the changes. And this was a common practice in those days to watch for future events or to see the signs of things that would come and would change. Probably uh, Daniel who was uh, one of those major prophets. He um, obviously uh, spent time in that region in the east. So um, he was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar under the Babylonian Empire, 605 BC. And, uh, and so he spent time working under three regimes. And perhaps these men, uh, the information about the Messiah, what to look for, had been passed down to them. Bible really doesn't say we kind of think of them differently with the Christmas story, but it's possible that they were Jewish men. That dispersion, as it's called, that dispersion of the Jews um, into that arena, you know, probably 10 to 15,000 young men were taken by Nebuchadnezzar and put in uh, to work in his empire. And so it's, it, it's possible that they were um, at least descendants of some of those young men that didn't return 
uh, return to Israel. And so Daniel may have passed on this information, but at any rate, these wise men were watching the stars. They were watching the sky, and they saw a star that was new, and they knew that that was going to identify the coming of a Messiah, that God had sent his son to earth. They were unbiased. They had the right, they had the right information, and they were looking. They were open to what God's answer would be. Interesting, the religious leaders in the nation of Israel, by and large, wholesale, missed it completely. But, of course, Herod, being an illegitimate leader, was only concerned about power. He was only concerned about control. Satan has been working in the same manner that Herod does, working with human beings, playing on that desire for power and control and to maintain it at almost any cost. And so Satan has been working to influence the human race in the same direction. Very easily, he can distract human leaders away from God's plan. Very easily, he can, he can help motivate them to not just resist God's plan, but work against it. Um, the history of the human race is interesting. The biblical account in Genesis uh, gives us uh, a timeline, if you will. If you delineate out all the different people and, and, um, and the times at which they live, we actually get quite a bit of detailed information in the book of Genesis. And one of the interesting things that um, I learned recently, being at the, um, the um, out east in Kentucky, that Ark Encounter, right? Ken Ham and his organization, Answers in Genesis, uh, create a timeline of the book of Genesis. And it's interesting, it took a, about 1,500 years from Adam to the time when Noah walked the earth and God, uh, because the human race had become so evil and wicked, God hit a reset button and flooded the earth and wiped out the human race and started over with Noah and his sons. 1,500 years it took from Adam who walked with God, who knew God, knew the truth about God. And when God was so grieved that he had created the human race, about 100 years after the flood, the entire human race was still gathered together in one place. And they thought, we can build a tower to heaven. We can control our own destiny. We're not worried about what God thinks or what his plans for us are. About 100 years between the flood and the Tower of Babel, when God had to come and frustrate the languages of the people on earth. It's just true that as human beings, we get off course very quickly. And as a human race, we have a tendency, we have a bent along with the influence of the devil and his uh, pressure and his, um, his lies that he speaks to us to move away from God's plan. And the powers on this earth, we still see this at play all the time. Really, the power struggle for what is going to happen on this earth is a spiritual battle. And human powers constantly are trying to stop God's plans and go their own way, find our own agenda, right? Make what we want happen. But God does not allow humans or Satan to alter the direction ultimately that this universe is going in. God ensures that his will gets accomplished because God protects his plans from earthly powers. Let's keep reading in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 12 and see what happens next. When it was time to leave, they, that is the magi or the wise men, returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. 
After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on what the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Unable to pinpoint the location of this potential threat, Herod takes brutal action, Again, frustrated that he couldn't manipulate the situation. Do you know that earthly powers, those in power on earth, their, their primary aim is, aim is to manipulate situations to the outcome they want? We see it in Herod. He's just going to manipulate the situation. Use the wise men, right, to find this potential threat and get rid of him. But because God intervened to protect, the wise men don't return to Herod. He's frustrated that his efforts didn't work. And so he um, enacts a a threat or an action, a genocidal action on his own people. Herod was already hated by the Jewish people. He's a Jewish man, has no right to the throne by blood. He's placed in power by Rome, meaning he works with the enemy. He works with the enemy. He's in bed with the enemy. He was corrupt. Not only that, was he, he was tremendously evil to his own people. He didn't care about the Jewish people. He wasn't a leader that was in place because he cared for the people of God or had any interest in God's direction for that country. He was simply there because he was a man who was willing to do anything to get in power. And he was, do, he was willing to do anything to keep that power. His brutal behavior is written about by... Um, Um, some of the even extra-biblical historical writers that give accounts of the history of the world. And and King Herod, Herod the Great, was one of the worst. He fit the culture of Rome. You know, Rome used brutal tactics to keep people under their control. And so Herod fit right in. He was willing to do the same thing. Uh, We were just out in Washington, D.C., which I've told you guys, but we got the opportunity Um, to visit some different spots. And one of the things that kept coming up in our time there was the Magna Carta. And uh, I didn't know a lot about it, uh, to be honest, but it was written in 1215 AD. And um, it came about because of the brutal reign of King John of England. The Magna Carta is one of the first examples, really in the history of Western civilization, of human rights being, uh, being elevated. So that individual, or excuse me, individual human rights. So individuals had rights that transcended the power even of a brutal king. King John was so brutal, like King Herod, uh, that he was um, enacting and in his efforts caused the people a great deal of pain and torment. No one was able to thrive and succeed. And he was just brutal in his treatment of his subjects. It's interesting that the Magna Carta was passed down Um, through history, and it was actually used to influence the writing of the U.S. Constitution. 
This idea that we are made in the image of God and as individuals, we have rights that are given to us by our creator. That a person of power is not able to transcend or overstep. This was relatively new on the human stage. In part, people surrendered to God and influenced by God have fought throughout the history of the world against the idea of tyrannical human power that is created and it's created a climate in our country. You know, this country is a bit of an experiment where power has accountability and citizens actually have rights and have the ability to hold power accountable so it doesn't become oppressive and cruel. As hard as it is to keep this from happening, it just is the tendency of our world. It's the tendency of human beings. In our story today, in the account of God sending his son to earth, God does not stop Herod or destroy him from his tyrannical behavior. He doesn't stop him from killing some innocent children. But he does protect his plan. He does ensure that Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, is not killed or stopped or snuffed out. Because again, God's plan is going to move forward. Even though human power will try to stop God's plan. Herod the Great, um, in a shocking act that we find abhorrent today, killed probably about 20 young boys under the age of uh, two. And this was in and around Bethlehem. Bethlehem, probably the population was maybe around 300. And so um, this wasn't mass genocide. still brutal behavior to go and pull babies out of the arms of their mothers and kill them, all at a tactic to ensure that he remained in power. Seems brutal to us today in our world, and yet, as we all know is true, 48 years ago, we made legal the ability to kill children in the womb, and so abortion has been active in our country, 60 million babies, um, I believe it is, have been lost. We've allowed something that I think we're finally admitting as a human race is brutal behavior. A practice that really has only been changed because of the, the technology advancements in ultrasound where we can see that a baby is not just a blob of tissue. Heartbeat laws seem to be pressing forward to overcome some of this barbaric behavior that we've been involved in. The truth is that though the human race changes and things change, really our behaviors kind of stay the same. Human power will always move away from God's plans. And yet God is ultimately in control. There have been governments and regimes that have sought to squash or stop the movement or advancement of the gospel, to kill the church. And as the Communist Party in China has discovered, um, it's not possible to stop the movement of God. The underground church in China has continued to explode over the years in spite of the communist regime's attempts to stop it, to make illegal, to punish, to imprison, even kill those that would claim to be following Jesus. I remember um, when I was a kid, the Soviet Union was the big communist regime that we were most aware of. We were in a battle with them, right, an arms race. And at any moment, if two people hit the button, we could all be disintegrated by nuclear weapons. 
But there was an attempt by Soviet Union to stop and to kill Christianity, to stop the church. You had to be a part of the state-organized religion. And so the Soviet Union even was maybe a little more successful than the communist regime or party in China, but they still were not able to stop the advancement or the propagation of the gospel. Um, In the Museum of the Bible that we were at recently, I saw a display on um, a man named Ken Howard who was actively involved in getting the Bible into the Soviet Union. And I remember reading as a kid comic books and stuff about Bible smugglers and how they would sneak Bibles in. They'd put Bibles in the trunk of their car and cover it with stuff and try to get past the guards. Seemed really exciting. Thought, man, this is cool. These guys are smuggling Bibles, you know, into, and then they're trying to stop them, you know. And uh, it, it was just, it was just kind of fun to read about. But to see that the gospel continues to advance in spite of human power and its efforts to stop it. See, God will protect his plans. He will protect his plans from the attempt of earthly powers to stop him. God's power, remember, friends, is greater than the powers on this earth. Greater than any power on this earth possesses. So my message to you, my encouragement to you is, don't fear the powers of this earth, rather fear God alone. Let's finish our story in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod of Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. Mary and Joseph knew that this was the son of God. Angels had revealed to them. This child was God in the flesh. He was different and unique and he would become the savior of the world. Yet they were still afraid. They were afraid of earthly powers. You know, earthly powers have control over our lives. The things they do affect us. And it's easy at times to become fearful of them. In fact, it's a natural reaction. And yet the reality is as um, Mary and Joseph would grow, they would learn that God was protecting his son, that nothing was going to harm Jesus or stop the advancement of God's cause or mission for him. We need to be reminded in the world we live in today that we're not to fear the powers that are over us. We really fear only God alone. When I was in uh, Denver, we moved from Atlanta to Denver back in 2007, and I was working for a retail company. And I went to work at this uh, retail company in Denver. We opened a new store. And, um, and as I was working there, I got to know everybody, and it was a great team and I had a great time. Uh, my manager was like 20 years younger than me, and, um, and that was great. We had a great relationship. We we're working together. And, you know, while I was there, I was in seminary, and I was going to a church on the weekends, and I was involved. And so, you know, my faith, who I was as a Christian, uh, just kind of spilled out um, into my daily life. I didn't really try to hide it. I was 
came out of the closet, you know, like I encourage Christians to do. It's okay. Come on out. The sun's bright. You know, you're not going to get smashed the moment you step out and say, hey, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And so I did. And I just kind of talked about what I was learning and growing. I had a buddy who would talk about his parties on the weekend. And I would talk about what I learned in church on the weekend. It was a good conversation. Uh, it, was, it led to some interesting stuff. And so uh, that was the way I lived, man. I was just kind of out there, open. This is who I am. And I got into lots of conversations with people, coworkers and, and, uh, and even customers. A lot of the time, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking, I couldn't believe how many times I ended up in those conversations. I wasn't trying to force it. It's just who I am. It's just who I am, right? Um, well, there was an incident that happened um, one night. I was at work and a manager came up and asked me a really weird question. She said, where does it say in the Bible that when a black man becomes president, the world will end? Okay, so this is a Bible quiz. Who knows? Okay, so I'm in seminary. I'm the Bible guy, right? So I said, well, interestingly enough, it doesn't say that in the Bible anywhere. And so they kind of ended the conversation. Somebody was hurt by that, which is kind of fair. I lobbied a, uh, lobbied a complaint to HR. Pretty soon everybody's going in to meet with the manager and the district manager. Were you a part of this conversation? What, got, what went on? Well, I said, well, I was a part of the conversation. I kind of stopped it. You know. Well, that's great, but... The truth is we just need to not talk about these things at work. Just stop talking about God. Stop talking about this stuff. Just keep it out of here. There'll be less trouble. And so I left that meeting. I was a little bummed, to be honest. I mean, I was kind of like, man, I was down and discouraged. I was like, how am I supposed to do this? You know? I mean, this is just who I am. I'm having a hard time imagining my head that I don't, I stop talking about God at all. Like, I don't I know how I could do it. <clears throat> but I, like every good Christian, I wanted to respect the authorities that were over me, right? So I was kind of trying to figure out my head, but I just felt like kind of spiritual oppression is all I felt really. And so I thought about it for a day and I was down a little bit. My sales manager, who was the one that talked about partying on the weekends and was a complete pagan, um, he came up and said, man, what's wrong? And I said, ah, struggling. I didn't really tell him. I know he knew what was going on. He finally said, you know, whatever it is, just keep being who you are. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't let it bother you. I said, no. Oh. Well, all right. If my pagan sales manager is going to tell me that, guess what I'm going to do? So it kind of helped me figure it out, you know. Hey, wait a minute. Uh, I'm not going to stop being who I am, and it's going to take more than, you know, being pulled in and a little slap on the wrist. In fact, it might mean a lot more than that. But I kind of decided in that moment I didn't really care. Like I was willing to just be who I was, keep being who I was. I believe the Bible says we're supposed to be salt and light. You know, I wasn't banging anybody over the head with the Bible. I wasn't trying to convert everybody to Christianity. I was just being who I was. And I was just talking about the things in my life. And so um, I discovered through that, that, um, you know, I never, not, I never got talked to again, never got in trouble again. And I kind of realized that, um, that as Christians, sometimes we're too easily kind of pushed back, you know, uh, put on the defensive or made to feel like we shouldn't talk about who we are and what we bring to the world. The problem is that God's called us to be salt and light, as I said, in fact, the Bible says, don't put your light under a bushel. Don't hide it, right? But let it shine. And so I think we live in a time where our fear of earthly powers, we need to be careful. The apostles, when they were called in and read the riot act about preaching the gospel by the rulers that be, do you remember what they said? Anybody remember? 
Yeah, we must obey God over men. Listen, we're respectful of the powers that be in our world. We're told to be, but we're also taught to obey God first and to fear him and him alone. I want to encourage you and encourage us as the people of God. Your light is needed in the world we live in. We need to leave this place and shine brighter and bolder. And if you have that tendency to feel pushed back a little bit, intimidated, told that you should keep your faith in the closet, keep it in church, like keep it to yourself, I just want to encourage you. That's not what you're called to do, right? And if you think the powers of this world are stronger than the God that you follow, you've got it wrong. It doesn't mean you won't get persecuted for being bold. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, thank you, God, for considering me worthy of being persecuted. Maybe we need a little bit more of that idea, that attitude, instead of worrying about it and being fearful of it. Hey, God, if you consider me worthy, man, I'll take that. Some real, legitimate, genuine persecution. I mean, we haven't seen much of that in this country. So, hey, it's okay. But we need to step out. We need to be bold. I want to encourage you. As a church, the world needs us. We, we don't need to have fear of earthly powers. They're not really in charge. They're not really in control. They can harm us. But we're not supposed to fear the one who can take our body and hurt it, but the one who can take our soul and cast into hell for all eternity, right? So let's continue to live in the fear of God. Let's obey God rather than men. Let's step out, be the salt and light that we're supposed to be. God, thank you for calling us not to something that's always easy and comfortable, but something that requires something of us. A calling that says, hey, um, child of God, follower of Jesus, you've got a plan and a mission for us. It requires some courage. It requires uh, faith. It requires that we trust you. And I pray for us as a church that we would continue to step forward in boldness, trusting you, fearing you first and not anything else. Give us that courage, God. Give us that ability to say what needs to be said in moments of opportunity. Encourage somebody with a word from you, with the truth of your word in a world full of lies. God, help us to love the people around us, to serve the world like you did. God, help us to be raised up, to be a people that represent you in the world, represent you in this community. And God, we know that you will use that light to bring light to others. Go before us into this new year. We want to follow you into the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.